This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apanov. Hello, friends. Andrew Apanov here, and you're listening to the We Spin Recipes podcast, episode number 42. Today, we've got DQ from Toolchat as a guest on the show, and. Uh, in fact, we already hosted uh, Dick some time ago in the episode number 14. If you're interested in checking it out, uh, you can find a link to, to that podcast episode in the show notes. And uh, I had a chance to meet Dick in person uh, at this year's Medium conference in Cannes. I attended his uh, session there, which was really cool and uh, thought-provoking. So I asked Dick if he would be willing to share his knowledge and talk about the same themes uh, on on, uh, Whisping Recipes. He agreed, which is awesome. And here you have a chance to, uh, to listen to him talking about some really important, even for sometimes not very positive topics, such as why exactly it's so difficult for indie musicians to make a living creating music these days, uh, what the music industry has been going through in the last uh, decades. Uh, so there is some um, really interesting comparisons uh, to other industries to, to understands what's going on right now, particularly with the uh, streaming area, which is obviously booming right now. There is lots of new streaming platforms uh, uh, coming out and uh, there is quite a lot of competition going on, quite a lot of controversial topics uh, involving uh, major and indie labels and different corporations and tech companies and so on. And um, uh, here you will hear uh, an alternative uh, income distribution model for streaming platforms, uh, which is uh, uh, per user uh, streaming. And uh, it's, it's, it's really cool and it's just important to be aware of it. So uh, listen to this conversation in full to learn everything about these things. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions, uh, hit me up uh, on, on, on SoundCloud or email andrew at uh, wispin.co. Uh, you can hit me up on, on, on Twitter and I mean anywhere. Any feedback is very welcome as always. But for now, I'm leaving you uh, with this interview. Hope you enjoyed. Here we go. Okay, so uh, let's go, right? Terrific. Nice to speak to you again, Andrew. It's really great to have you on the show again. And I I appreciate you finding the time to do this. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really enjoyed our last conversation. In fact, I'm happy to say that the post you did of my last conversation with you was the largest number of retweets of anything I've ever done on the internet. (laughs) Seriously. Congratulations (laughs) to you and to your company. Uh, thank you. I, I actually didn't know about that. So it's nice. Nice to know. And it was really great and insightful talk. And um, yeah, so uh, maybe we should start uh, with a very quick intro on yourself because uh, since our last conversation, we grew. <laughs> so now we've got more listeners and uh, some of them may have not heard that episode. Although I, of course, linked to it in the show notes. So do you mind sharing a little bit on your background? Sure, I'll just do a quick one. So I am the, uh, the owner and founder of a company called Toolshed. We're at toolshed.biz, B-I-Z. 
And we're a digital media consultancy. We started in 2001. We work with blue chip brands, clients like uh, Red Bull and Spotify. We also work with nonprofit collectives, such as Sound Exchange, startups in entertainment, sports and fashion, such as Utrax, Sueño, a, a fashion brand, Red Mountain Ski Resort in British Columbia. We're also a digital marketing agency. And in our 14-year history, we've worked with over 350 artists, a wide variety of small, medium, and large artists from primarily independent record labels and many unsigned individual artists. My background is with the Beggars Group record labels, which includes the seminal record labels 4AD, Matador, XL Recordings, and Rough Trade. I started their new media department in 97 and ran the department four years before I started my company. And in that capacity, I represented Matador Records on the Sound Exchange Board for nine years. And more recently, I joined the Future of Music as uh, the president of their board. So that's my history. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And uh, once again, to everyone listening, I highly recommend you checking out uh, the previous podcast episodes, which is linked to in the show notes. And uh, I think you give uh, a bit full intro on yourself. So it's, it's all, I mean, it's, it's a really good one. So I was fortunate enough uh, to be at Medium at the um, uh, conference in Cannes uh, this year. And I was fortunate enough to attend your session, the presentation that you did uh, there. It's uh, the pretty chilly uh, <laughs> room. <laughs> the, yes. Uh, it was, yeah, really it was a really good one to the uh, session itself, of course. And um, I just, I was really impressed by the, by the idea and the concept and the presentation itself. And uh, it was uh, probably a new topic to myself. So not the topic itself, but the concept that you described there. So if I'm not mistaken, the title was uh, Building a Bigger... Uh, okay, I'm not, I don't want to think it. No, you got I'm it right. Reading, I'm, I'm reading it right now. So I'm from the middle of So building a bigger boat, you use a streaming and selling to the edges, right? Yes, that's correct. That's right. Uh, building a bigger boat. So that, the idea was with this presentation that I wanted to talk about a little bit about the history of, you know, where the music business is right now. Then I wanted to talk about, I wanted to demystify a topic that I think is really confusing for a lot of people. And I uh, came up with the idea of, the, of a new media ruler, a music utility ruler, which sort of explains how music gets priced, why some music pays rights owners X, why some, you know, uses of music pay X, uh, music rights owners Y. You know, in other words, why does streaming something on Pandora pay at one rate and why does purchasing a CD pay at another rate? How do people figure that out? So that was the second part of it. And then I raised the um, concept of subscriber share streaming. And subscriber share streaming is really the, the meat and potatoes of the presentation. That's the last part that I'll do. And in that, I talk about the current metric for distributing income from, from streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera. An idea about how we could distribute that same revenue differently in a way that I think might be a uh, it would certainly be a different metric for dis- distributing the same amount of money, but in my opinion, it may actually be a, a fairer metric. Yeah. So, so that's what today's discussion is about. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm really glad that you agreed to cover these topics uh, 
even if in short on our podcast. But do you want to start with uh, the first part and maybe talk a little bit about what you started with at this session? Sure. So the first piece, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, that I started with is I wanted to make a case for why why it's actually important to talk about, or at least to engage the music industry and you know, really all um, members of the music industry ecosystem. That includes fans, that includes rights owners, and that includes tech companies. Why it's important to do this now, why this isn't just an academic discussion. And to do that, I felt that I needed to put out a little bit of history and talk about what's actually happened in music over the last 20-30 years. And in order to do that, I wanted to highlight two books that were really sort of seminal reads for me and that have informed my opinion over the years. And these two books won't be a surprise to anybody who hangs out in the same nerd space that I do, but they might be books that others haven't heard of. One of them is called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And the other one is called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. So tech companies are probably universally have read these books, but less so in the music industry. The music industry you know, has relatively fewer economists than the tech industry probably does. And the topics are not as directly related to the day-to-day business of working the record business. But let's start with the innovator's dilemma. So the innovator's dilemma raises the concept of disruptive innovation. What is disruptive innovation? Disruptive innovation is innovation that happens that changes the user interest profile for a particular product. So one of the examples that they use in that book is the steam shovels. The steam shovel industry in the 30s, I guess 40s, 1930s, 1940s, was the predominant industry in place before hydraulics uh, came about. And at that point, it was all about building a bigger and bigger and bigger steam, steam shovel. You have one that does this, I have one that can lift So around that time, somebody invented hydraulics and the immediate reaction by companies that looked at a hydraulics technology was that, oh, it's, it, it, can't, it can't lift as much as a steam shovel. Can. Therefore, it's not useful the same way a steam shovel is. And so companies that were producing steam shovels continued producing steam shovels and continued improving them took a look at this new technology that came along, but they didn't really focus on it. Meanwhile, new entrants in the market looked at hydraulics and said, well, we can create new applications for this. And they did create new applications. For instance, little mini miniature uh, tractors that would allow you to dig around your house. And people started getting interested in this technology. And at a particular point, which is the point where the disruptive technology curve sort of meets the demand curve, you have users who switch over all at once to the new technology. And when that happens, the companies that are producing the older technology in very high percentage cases go out of business. So this has happened over and over and time and time again. There are companies who understand the concept of disruptive technology and who actively create technology to sort of eat their own products, if you will. Apple uh-huh. is one of them. If you look at Apple, it's a great example. They have, you know, they created the iPad, which fit into the laptop market. 
And then they created the iPhone, which put into the iPad market. So they continue to create products that eat their own products in effect. And that is successfully applying the concept of disruptive innovation. You're actually you're actually creating a product that's good enough to put your own product out of it. Let's talk about the music industry. This concept was one that took the music industry a long time to wrap its head around. I would argue many places they still have to have around. And you know, the issue was of course digital music versus physical sales of music. So the industry continued to focus on physical sales of music for many, many years. And when digital music rolled around and consumers and users were first exposed to it, you know, at, at first the attention to it was very limited. That was around the time I started my, my company, actually, 2001. It was hard to get people to pay attention to digital music because it wasn't a meaningful amount of sales. Now fast forward to 2015, digital music is a massively important piece of sales. And companies that were focused on physical sales are now trying to transition to digital music are having lots of problems. Um, and there are many companies that have went by the wayside. Many record labels, Touch and Go is a good example, in the early 2000s. And many uh, support companies as well that dipped their toe into digital music, but didn't really jump into it. So you have this, this scenario of a technology hitting our industry that really, really meaningfully impacted it. And companies moving too slowly to capitalize and being unwilling to jeopardize their existing income streams by moving into meaningful embrace of new income streams. So that's the first problem that happened. And the second problem is, and this relates to the second book that I mentioned, the Jeffrey Moore book, Crossing the Chasm, is the concept of the chasm and what it means to actually embrace a new technology. So the general stages of that are put out in the book Crossing the Chasm are that you start out with technology enthusiasts. So you have people like probably me and you, Andrew, and many others who are super early adopters. We're the ones who go out and buy the really, you know, the first iPhone, maybe one of the early Android phones. We try things. And you know, the first stage of Crossing the Chasm is all about that. It's about finding people like us and getting them interested in product. Second stage is sort of you're sort of viewing or you're sort of growing your attention in this space of early adopters and you're mistaking where you are on the demand curve. You're mistaking how close you are to the mainstream market. And in fact, this leads into the third point of this particular concept, which is you're very concerned that you are at the start of entrance into the mainstream market, when in fact, you're still in the early market. And there's a thing called the chasm that exists between the two. And what typically happens is companies and industries think they're further along than they are, and they're highly focused on, okay, we're at mass adoption point. So now we need to put rules, we need to put limits, we need to add changes. And often companies who are trying to push technology forward are saying things like, we need to embrace freemium. We need to embrace getting more users. We don't have enough users yet. We haven't really entered the mass market. I would argue that that's where we are right now with digital music and with the topic of freemium, freemium in particular. Uh But we are, a lot of content owners think that we're further into the process, we're further into the mainstream market than we are. In fact, we're still among the early adopters. Yeah, so so sorry for interrupting you, but, it just you're putting it in in uh, other words 
because early adopters are, are so engaged with the product, the developer, the, the creator of products uh, may assume that uh, they achieved that point where they're entering the mass market, but there is this gap between the mainstream and this small group of super active uh, fans of, or users. But the, the mainstream market is l- much less engaged in, in using something. Is it along the lines of what you mentioned? Yeah, it's very much along the lines of that. So this creates a, a conundrum. It creates a problem. It's a problem for the tech company that is recognizing that it has not yet really entered the mass market. And it's a problem for the rights owner side of the equation, which is thinking that they've already entered the, the mass market and it's time to refine. It's time to cut back. And you see this happening mm-hmm. right now with uh, you know the strong statements coming from Universal, for instance about scaling back premium and, uh, you know, other record labels, Warner, for instance, you know, the major end of the scale say not so fast, careful, you know, let's not kill the golden goose. So it's, it's a, it's a real challenge and it's a legitimate challenge and it's hard to know where you're at, but you know, this is a, a pretty well-established economic principle that, or economic scenario, I should say that exists and, you know, it's, it's not always easy to tell which side you're on, but I would make the argument that we're still on the early adopter side and that we have not yet gotten across the chasm um, and that companies are trying to get across it. But, you know, the music industry is making it trickier to get there. Yeah. So that's the those are two of the of the readings that inform some of my thinking on this particular issue. And I think it's a good opportunity now to maybe look at, you know, a little bit about the history of the market. So. You know, in the early 80s, in the early 80s, the market was entirely physical. That switched approximately 1984 to an unprotected digital format, which was the CD. And, you know, at the time, the CD was a little over 2% of the market, very, very small. By 2002, that had completely morphed, completely changed, where the CD, a digital format, was 95% of the market. So huge change. And... Of course, MP3s had just started to enter the collective popular conscience at that point. If you shoot forward uh, around around 2003, the iTunes store launched, which was the decoupling of the album. This was the point at where all of a sudden you were purchasing, you were able to purchase just one track instead of 10 tracks or whatever on a, a full record. And this started changing consumer behavior. And by 2010, and this, by the way, predates most streaming, not all of it, but most streaming. Uh, Rhapsody was around at that point. They were a streaming service. But so the CD market by 2010 was cut in half. And there was no U.S. launch of Spotify yet. It had launched in Sweden and a couple other territories. Okay. And of that, downloads were maybe 30% of the market. So you had changing economics. You had downward pressure on music industry revenue. Mm-hmm. It was still most would argue sustainable. It meant that a lot of the fat that was in the market that appeared around you know, the advent of the CD when consumers en masse repurchased their record collections, their whole record collection. That was a huge influx of money into the industry. It wasn't accompanied at the next format switch you know, in 2004 with the same influx of money. And the reason for that is that you could you could actually, you didn't have to switch. You could actually rip tracks from the CDs that you had or that you borrowed from friends 
and move to the next format. So that was, that was an important distinction. And, you know, at this point in 2014, when these figures come from the RIAA, digital downloads are about 37% of the market. Streaming is about 27% of the market and physical is about 32% of the market. So you've got a really radically changing music industry with different price points all through it. And, you know, in the period from 2002 to about 2014, the global market for recorded music is about half of what it was. And another slide that is really interesting that you can find in my presentation, which I believe you can link to, oh, yeah. is the where artists are earning money from. So they're, uh, the money that they're earning from this actual sale of recordings or the actual purchase or usage of music is, again, about, about half, a little more than half, actually, what it was in 2000. And overall income has gone down, but much of it has been replaced with touring has become much more important for some number of bands. So, you know, what's happening inside the music business, the pressure from these economic concepts and the result in income is that you have a, a global market that has shrunk substantially, is probably arguably slowly turning around and mm-hmm. climbing out of it, but there's no immediate quick climb, you know, on the horizon. And meanwhile, you have a generation of artists who are trying to make a living. They have to still figure out a way to make a living. Some of these artists, they might be older artists, they might be career artists with, you know, with good fan bases who are touring less than than they did previously. That could be a combination of, you know, jobs, careers, families, whatever else. They're still writing and producing tremendous music, but the grassroots activities that they were able to engage in, certainly in the physical space, certainly in the the CD space, probably in the download space, are not translating over to the streaming space. And that's a problem. And that's one of the things that I want to, that's one of the reasons why I think subscriber share is an important concept for us to debate and really determine what the impact is going to be. So, you know, really that there's no wild change of direction on the horizon. And third thing I think it's important to to discuss, and then I'm done with the discussion part of this, of the history, is that there's a concept of the long tail. The long tail is an idea that arose in the mid-2000s in the music industry that suggested that in an age of infinite music availability, that people would gravitate towards just the music that they wanted to hear. And that would create a long tail for music. You would actually grow the usage of, of music that was more marginal or more fringe. And, you know, that that would be a greater, that would present a greater opportunity for fringe artists than they had previously. There's quite a bit of study about this phenomenon, and there's an author named Anita Elbers. She's uh, published a number of of papers um, in the Harvard Business Review. She's a Harvard economist. that show that this is not actually what's happening, Mm -hmm. that the the long tail is not actually as generous, anywhere near as generous, to artists at the tail end of the long tail than you might think. So you have this sort of combination of economic factors that are shrinking the music business, a streaming industry, which is starting to take hold, but has not hit mainstream acceptance yet, and certainly does not have mainstream revenues yet, and a flattening, not a broadening of the long tail. 
which makes it harder than ever for artists to make money. You can understand why artists are having a hard time and why a lot of record labels are having a hard time. That's why. Yeah, and and I mean, it, it explains quite a lot and uh, I get the concepts and um, it's clear, but at the same time, it's it may feel slightly depressing. <laughs> it is slightly depressing. You know, it suggests that we need to, we can't discount the concerns of artists in particular, but also of record labels who are saying, you know, is there another way to look at this? Is there another way that we can address what's going on in the marketplace right now? Yeah. That's going to be the third part of my talk. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. That's one idea for addressing that is subscriber share income distribution. But before I do that, let me talk for just a second about how music is priced. So music is generally priced. It's not magic and it's not arbitrary. It's generally priced uh, according to utility. In other words, the more you can do with music, the higher it's priced. The more flexibility you have around music, the higher it's priced. So if you go, imagine a ruler and uh, the ruler sitting in front of you. And at the left end of the ruler, you have the most non-interactive uses of music. And when I say most non-interactive, I mean you have the least ability to influence what it is you're going to hear. Right now, in the United States, that would be probably terrestrial radio or standard webcasting. Terrestrial radio states pays zero to sound recording owners. And digital radio in the United States, simulcast, for instance, it's 0.005 cents per stream. So it's a very small amount. But you also are, I mean, it's a crapshoot. You sort of get what's coming to you. You don't have the ability to influence it. As you start to move to the right along the ruler, you move through, for instance, an ability to say, well, I'd like to listen to a station that's influenced by pavement. That would be a company like Pandora, maybe, or 8-Tracks, where you, have, uh, you pay a slightly higher rate because you have the ability to influence the music. Then you might move to on-demand ad-supported streaming, which other people refer to as freemium. With that, you can actually pick what you want, but you need to stream it. So you need to be connected to a, uh, you know, an internet connection or to a wireless connection. So that reduces your utility a little bit. You, know, you can't listen in the middle of a subway tunnel. On the other hand, you can get an on-demand subscription, which costs you a little bit more. And that on-demand subscription might allow you to download tracks and listen to them offline. Again, you're moving to the right across this ruler. And as you're moving to the right, it costs you more and more. Then let's say you move to an actual download of music. So in this case, you've gone from a streaming model where you didn't possess the music or you only possessed it while you retained a subscription to actually having a digital copy of it. And that, you know, with iTunes, in the case of iTunes, for instance, was 70 cents a track. That was what rights owners got. It cost the consumer 99 cents or $1.29. Moving further to the right, you have high-definition digital. So this is, you know, lossless. This would be things like Flax or maybe Ogborbis or as many people have heard of Neil Young's Pono offering. So there you have the, again, further utility. You continue to move to the right. You have physical ownership, CD or an LP, and you move all the way to the right, and you have actual live sitting in front of you as the band performing it, and that costs a lot. Yeah. You know, maybe $100 for a ticket. So that's how the music utility ruler works. And, you know, it's, it's not magic. It's how we figure out when a new entrant comes into the marketplace. 
where they belong. And, you know, the discussions about music pricing generally fall into those buckets and pricing discussions and wars in some cases are very much influenced by so that's our second part yeah and, and let, let me just comment that it's a, a brilliant way of explaining this i think and i hope that we will be able to show it visual after all so just for some context at the time of the recording of this podcast the presentation of yours is still not available on the media website but it's supposed to be there so yeah watch out for the show notes and i will link to the pdf as soon as it's available because you have a really nice prop there. Yeah. At Medium, everyone was just staring at the TVs and at the on the stage because it's, yeah, it's it's really visual. So, yeah. But I hope that the listener got the idea. Terrific. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'd love to have, to have people uh, go and refer to that to the document. In that document, when I get into the third section of this, and this is really the meat and potatoes, and I'll try to keep it quick because I'm sensitive to how much time people have to spend on this podcast. An article came out not too long ago from the, from the singer and writer in Creeper Lagoon, a guy named Sharky Laguana. It debuted on the Medium website. It was called How to Make Streaming Royalties Fair. Look it up, find it. An encapsulation of an idea that had been floating around for some number of years, news groups that I participate in. And it was a really interesting idea and one that I had been gaining steam and that had been gaining steam with me. That, you know, generally when you look at how income is distributed, um, and this, this comes off, you can find this information generally on, uh, for instance, on Spotify's website, they have a blog, and they talk about how they split up revenues. In general, and without going deeply into the mechanics of it, you have a 70-30 split with sound recording owners. So, you know, that generally means that the service keeps in the neighborhood of 30%, and that the sound recording owner gets... 70%. So if the sound recording owner is an artist, that means that that 70% largely comes to them. If the sound recording owner is a label, it goes to the label. And then however, whatever type of deal they have with their artist determines how much money they, the artist actually gets. Some independent labels do 50-50 splits. Others do 10 splits. It really depends. But if you go with this 70-30 metric for a minute, Let's say you're talking about a $10 subscription. So we're presuming that in a $10 subscription, about $7, somewhere in the range of $7, goes to the sound recording owner. Right now, the way that money is split up on really pretty much every digital streaming service, digital streaming subscription service, is using a metric called Parada. What that says is you total up the entire number of streams that you have and you divide that total number of streams into the total amount of revenue that you have. And, you know, that, that's a simplistic explanation of it. There's, there's a freemium side and there's a subscription side. But for the moment, let's just talk about the subscription side. So when you do that, you come up with a per user streaming amount. And that amount varies, but sort of floats around depending on the service, anywhere between approximately half a penny per stream up to, in case of some services, uh, two to three cents per stream. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the approximate range. So, you know, just doing really simple math, that's a metric that works pretty well, or reasonably well, I would argue, for artists who have a lot of engagement and a lot of plays. 
and less well for artists who don't. And I'll go into that more in a minute. But so that's how the metric works now. What if there was a way to slice and dice that revenue up differently? So let's go back again to that $10 subscription and the 70-30 split. Yeah. So we'll take the $7 and here's where we're going to introduce the concept of subscriber share. So in subscriber share distribution, but per user distribution, per user distribution, you take the same split of money, but you focus on the individual user, the individual subscriber, and you distribute the money based on what that individual subscriber uh, played during the month. So let me give the simplest example of this. The very simplest example is I'm a subscriber and I go and play one track in a particular month. So I pay a $10 subscription fee, 30% of that, $3 loosely, goes to the streaming service. The other $7 case of subscriber share goes entirely to that one artist that I play. In contrast to per user, where uh, they would actually earn half a cent to two to three cents for that one play. So that's the broadest example I can give of the difference between subscriber share and and it's really clear. So let me ask you right away. So do you think it's just a theory or it's something that some of the streaming, maybe future streaming platforms could apply? Or have you heard any feedback from uh, from representatives of streaming platforms about this model? I've heard very little on the record. I have heard a little bit off the record. And, and uh, so obviously I won't mention who I heard it from, but I think it's Fair to say that this hasn't, I doubt that this has escaped the attention of any of the streaming services. Right. You know, what's interesting about it is that it doesn't actually change the economics for the streaming team. We're still talking about them earning the same amount of money that they did previously. So, I mean, in either model, in subscriber share or in parada distribution, you're still talking about, you know, $3 in fact, $10 subscription. So there isn't really, I can't come up with a particular reason why services should care. Maybe only because of major labels, assuming they may be earning less. Well, that's a different issue. That's, so now you're moving from the service side to the rights owner side. Yeah. There, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the crux of the business. <laughs> right. That's where you really have, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean, the only other thing I would say about the service side of things, the streaming service side of things, is that, you know, there's a, there's a dialogue going on now um, that remember a rat cannot see it. Artists who are pulling music off streaming services because they feel pay enough or they don't earn enough. And, you know, there's certainly an argument with subscriber share that this changes the economics of that second in a way that is positive for the overall discussion of streaming music. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the rights owner. So this is, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I could spend hours on it. Other than to say, there are studies that have been done. Rasmus Rex is a gentleman from Denmark who has done a study with data from the streaming service, which is entitled uh, Services Purchased by Jay-Z. So he did a study on how the subscriber share model would impact artists. And one of the things that he found is that subscriber share for many 
big artists actually increases them. Now, from the standpoint of fair and who needs money, you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, actually, it does make sense because the major record labels who have the vast majority of really huge artists, pop artists, also control you know, the range of 30 to 35% of the music market. So any decision to switch streaming economics with any existing service is going to have to get past that, or it probably won't happen. So the fact right. that many pop artists actually grow the revenues in this model cycle, it's not necessarily negative. Question, the bigger question is what happens as you go further down the line? How does that change? And what requires more study, but what I believe will happen is fans with fan bases will have the opportunity to generate more income under subscribership than they would have otherwise. The thinking goes somewhat somewhere along the lines of this. Right now, the existing metric for revenue distribution generates money, can generate money, disproportionate to the amount of money that subscriber puts into the system. So if, for instance, you are a first subscriber or you're a subscriber to one of the streaming services and you play that every day in your business, so you have a business and you stream every day, you can arguably take more money out of the system than you put into the system. Right. Because, you know, based on the number of strict total number of streams that you do, you may put ten dollars in and they take ten dollars out, thirty. That comes at the expense of the users. The other problem that exists in the, in the, in the this also relates to the value of an individual subscriber, is click fraud. Click fraud is a acknowledged and known problem, certainly at the uh, you know in the ad survey arena, it's a problem on Google. Ads. It's a problem with streaming services because I mean there are uh, there are programs that have been written, there are homes that have been written across the internet about how you can gain streaming service to pay out more money than you put And the combination of these two issues, I think, creates a problem for for user compensation. Excuse me, for uh, pro rata compensation. Yeah, yeah. That is not. You don't have the same problem with per user. With per user, you can't pay out more than the amount of money any particular user puts into the system. So you can't create a network of 100 accounts and earn, you know, yeah, two it, times revenue or exactly, four times. Yeah, because, yeah. You can only earn what you put into it. So it's a net neutral operation for somebody that's trying to gain the system. And that's an important consideration. But even more than that, Going back to my the point I was making about fans um, and bands with fans, bands with fans are likely going to have more users streaming them. And depending on the amount of play that happens, there's a great likelihood that each of these individual users is going to generate more money for a band with fans because they might likely be their music consumers, more dedicated music consumers. They might be more likely to be using the platform in a way that shows age music consumption rather than passive music consumption. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to leave you with on this is that 
there is an inflection where think about per user streaming or subscriber share streaming. You know, streaming one track a month on a ten dollars subscription is seven dollars through the lifetime generates out seven dollars. Two tracks would be three fifty each two days. Four streams would be a dollar seventy-five to so the number goes down as you play more. And many people have seized upon this saying that's a sort of a perverse incentive. The more music you play, the more the number goes down. And it's true at a particular point, that number seems to be around 1,100 streams. You sort of reach the point where the music with the existing Colorado distribution process is right now. So in other words, about 1,100 streams, subscriber share and Colorado look very similar. And if you stream more than that, subscriber share, and you actually go below where you are. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, a lot of people have seen some that and said, well, that's a problem. It means that dedicated music listeners are likely to listen to more music and they uh, pay less. And that's true. But you have to look at what the average level of pay is right now. And uh, the metrics that I have seen about this suggest that anywhere from sort of 250 tracks to maybe 400 tracks a month is average usage, which means that you could arguably increase the payouts to certain artists and overall payouts, payouts to many artists by factor for an average user. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's subscriber share. And it's an interesting concept and one that needs a lot more evaluation by the industry and by the yeah, you you just did a great job in explaining this, and musicians and industry professionals should be educated about this. I think, and I mean, it's an open question still. What will uh, happen next? It's a good concept. I can see its advantages for sure. Uh, for yeah, for indie artists and uh, even for listeners, uh, feeling that they they contribute more by just using the platform, like supporting the artists who they like. So there is definitely lots of advantages. What will happen with it? It's uh, definitely an intriguing one, but we'll see. So, yeah, I mean, you just basically <laughs> listed the topics that you covered at Medium. And uh, so, dear listener, you, you had a pretty unique opportunity here because it was not just a recording from that session, but uh, you just yeah, explained it to us here. It's much appreciated. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to discuss it. And um, I would just uh, also mention in a tiny bit of self-promotion that I hope to discuss the topic further at Future of Music this year in Washington, D.C., which is October 26th and 27th. Yeah, 26th and 27th. And also, I hope, at South by Southwest next year. It's in panel pick at the moment. But, um, keen to talk about this and to get discussion going about it. You know, it's either right or it's wrong. It certainly changes the distribution. And my thinking is that it changes it in a way that is positive to bands with fan bases. And you know, I'd like to be able to, I need more data to be able to show that. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly a lot of interesting data out there now. And it's a topic that I think artists should be paying attention to and should be starting to wrap their head around. Um, you know, there's not just one there's rarely just one solution to a problem. So let's look at a way that we can evaluate the different opportunities that more accurately 
channel income to bands that you know either engage in grassroots marketing to their fans or that or that have strong fan bases. I think that's where streaming music should pay off. Yeah, and I think it can pay off even as it scales and grows in those areas. If we look at concepts like subscriber share streaming. Yeah, so I fully agree. And uh, I want to thank you for spreading the word about these alternative uh, concepts and ideas and educating musicians. It's just priceless, I think. So thank you. And to everyone who will be at the conferences that you mentioned, your sessions are master tense for sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sorry for making it longer than I intended. It was but, uh... really interesting and engaging. Once again, thank you. And I'm pretty confident it's not <laughs> the last time we have you here. <laughs> Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you. And once again, thanks a lot to Dick for this interview. It was great to me and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you have any feedback, you can leave it uh, in the comments on iTunes. And don't forget to, to rate the podcast as well if you decide to do so. Or on SoundCloud. And uh, you can find us on, on Twitter. Uh, so you can direct questions or feedback to me or Dick directly. And um, yeah, so speaking of iTunes, I haven't reminded about this for a while. You can get a pretty cool postcard, a unique design postcard, uh, if you leave uh, a, a rating um, on iTunes for this podcast and uh, maybe uh, a nice review. So uh, just to, to make my point clear, it's it's not just for, for self-promotion or spreading the words about our brand. It's just so the podcast can be discovered by more musicians. So iTunes work this way. So only if uh, a podcast gets um, numerous reviews and ratings, uh, it's recommended to those who listen to other podcasts in the same genre, let's say. So musicians who discovered some other music marketing podcasts may discover us as well. If you help us with uh, getting some reviews and ratings up. So it's it's really important uh, for us. I really appreciate that. You can find more details at getacard.wispin.co. So getacard is one word, .wispin.co and yeah so just do everything is described there leave your contact information and we'll send you something really cool so thank you a lot for listening and hear you next week you have been listening to the we spin recipes podcast learn how we can help you improve your music career at we spin 12.com we spin 12